This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help them get stuff done, but more importantly, to help their people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is John Smith. John is co-founder of Pobble, a tech startup helping children in schools to get more engaged in creative writing. And Pobble has grown massively during COVID as a tool to help with homeschooling. So in this episode, we talk about the growing pains of startups, productivity while managing a fully remote team, the work-life balance benefits of being based in Cornwall and how that helps him to get beyond busy. And there's some brilliant perspectives on success, people management, and much more. This is John Smith. John Smith, how are you doing? Hi, very good, thanks. Yeah. So really good to have you on Beyond Busy and you're down in Cornwall, right? Yeah, that's right. So you were just telling me before we press record that you moved a year or so ago. So just pre-pandemic, you made the decision to up sticks from London and end up in Cornwall. So that turned out pretty well, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I grew up in Cornwall, so I've always known that Cornwall's a lovely place to live and things. And um, after university, I traveled around. I lived abroad in the Middle East, in America for a little while. And then we spent about five, six years in London. But we had two small children. So by the time we moved, I think we had a two and a four year old. And we were living in a flat in central London with no garden, a tiny balcony. Right. And yeah, pretty much once we sort of decided that we wanted to live in a different place, partly driven by my four year old daughters was beginning to develop asthma. And the doctors probably related to living in you know, quite a polluted area of Camden. Oh, OK. And so anyway, about 18 months ago, we took the plunge and moved to a house with a garden down in Truro in, in Cornwall. And uh, to be honest, we haven't really looked back. A few people thought we were a bit crazy at the time, but yeah. with everything that's happened since, I think probably validated that as a not a bad decision. Yeah. I really fell in love with Cornwall this summer when I went down for a, a holiday for a couple of weeks with my family and drove around to a few places. And one of the things that made me fall in love with it was how cut off it seems from the rest of England and the UK, right? Yeah. Like it just feels really far away. It's a bit like when you're in Australia on a global scale, you kind of get the sense when you're in Australia that you're just so far away from everywhere else. Do you think you had that sense growing up? And I'm really interested what that meant for your kind of psyche and kind of like the whole kind of self-identity versus sort of Cornish identity and so on. Mm. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, as I was growing up, you kind of loved going to beaches and lovely walks and cliff walks and things, but you kind of took it for granted. I didn't really realize how special Cornwall was until I left. Mm. And so I suppose as a young person growing up, you see perhaps the lack of opportunity or the lack of excitement to being part of the city. And I think also 30 years ago, Cornwall was very different. You had all of the nature as it is now, but you also didn't have the restaurants or the places to go out or the kind of the development of the infrastructure that you have now. So even still is feels isolated in a way relative to some areas of the UK, but it was even more so, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. But I think having left Cornwall, it's interesting, the number of people that leave, young people leave because they kind of perceive that there are other opportunities and bigger cities and new exciting things to explore and discover. And then so many people come back 
And it's interesting, lots of my friends who grew up in Cornwall have gone away, gone to university, got jobs, and then headed back to Cornwall. And I think it's a lot because they recognise how much fantastic it can be for children. Mm, yeah. Having a lifestyle where they're going out to beaches every week and after school being picked up and going to wonderful sort of parks and things so easily accessible i think it's just a really good draw for parents makes life lots easier for us you can have kids on a beach all day and they can feel completely engaged and sort of excited by what they're doing and how they're playing and things so yeah, yeah. that's ideal for parents <laughs> absolutely and we're going to talk about your work and pobble which is an, an education-based tech starter but just before we do that so yeah I'm in Brighton and Brighton is kind of arguably a city, but it's it's really a, a, a small town. <laughs> but we're sort of connected into London and I find myself sometimes missing the kind of startup buzz of London. And so mm. when you're in that startup phase, when you're in that phase of wanting to network and see what the other technology companies are doing around education and stuff, do you miss that buzz? Like, is there much of a sort of startup tech scene in Cornwall or do you have to go back to London to get that? Well, it was quite interesting before the pandemic. I used to go back up to London relatively regularly, probably once or twice a month for two or three days. And and that was quite important at that point to kind of stay connected with everyone, whether that's investors or partners or whatever else. Interestingly, a lot of education startups aren't actually in London, partly because London's really expensive to grow a startup. Talent's Mm. very expensive because you're competing with people like Google and Amazon and that sort of thing. Yeah, of course. And so we had an office in central London for a while and it was great fun. There were a lot of really cool things. We were part of the Microsoft Accelerator, which was great, right in the kind of middle of, you know, we're in Moorgate and we were totally in amongst the kind of startup sort of thing. But I think as we sort of grew and, you know, moved a little bit past the very early stage, we sort of didn't need that sort of ecosystem as much. We learned a lot of the lessons. We kind of, you know, it was a lot more like, right, now we need to actually execute and deliver on on our kind of plans. And interestingly, when we went, when we arrived in Cornwall, I didn't really expect any sort of ecosystem at all for anything. Mm. And what I found is actually there are a lot, good number of particularly socially focused entrepreneurs down here doing really interesting things and things like food or new packaging methods. And there's also a lot of new industries, things like the space industry. Oh, wow. There's a lot of space development happening out of Newquay Airport. You know, this is where they're going to be launching Britain's satellites from, is from Cornwall. And so there's a lot of money, a lot of investment going into developing startup and more established sort of companies in that area. Yeah. And for example, there is, you know, COISIV is the Cornwall and Isles of Scilly Investment Fund. This is backed by the British Business Bank. It's basically a VC with £40 million to invest in high growth businesses in Cornwall. And so as soon as we arrived in Cornwall, suddenly we were able to be exposed to those sorts of funding sources. And the fact is, in London, you're talking about hundreds of funds, but you're talking about thousands of startups looking for those funds. Yeah. Whereas in Cornwall, you know, a lot less high growth businesses that have kind of international ambition. So suddenly, actually, we were able to access better grants different funding sources. And the network is small here. So as an example, we've been working a bit with Microsoft and we found like one of the very senior Microsoft executives has a second home in Cornwall. <laughs> so again, very easy to be able to connect with that person and uh, yeah. and yeah, actually have some kind of FaceTime with him, which I think that would have been very, very difficult to do because of the competitive nature of London. So yeah, pluses and minuses, I would say, but it was surprising how much is going on in the area. 
And I suppose that's also the other thing about being a big fish in a slightly smaller pool, isn't it? Is that once you're known and people know you, they pass that information on. And so you become known to a much wider network than you would if you're just kind of drowning as a new kid on the block in London kind of thing. I think that's right. And I think the industry is key as well. In London, things like fintech, commerce, there are a lot of like really fast growth, high risk, but also high potential return businesses. Mm. And they dominate what's going on property tech, for example, whereas edtech is just by its nature, a much slower growing sort of industry, particularly if you're selling in schools and that sort of thing, Yeah, you know, and you don't, you don't have that kind of incredible sort of energy and momentum around some of those startups. It takes a bit longer. Mm. So I think in some ways, a lot of really successful edtech companies, pretty much most of them are based outside of London, right. which is just quite interesting. And I guess because their main client base is schools and parents. Yeah. A lot of them would be so far from being household names, right? So this is like a whole area of tech that is almost the stories aren't so well known. People aren't talking about those companies as much as they are the big kind of fintech consumer facing brands and so on. Yeah, I think I would say that's probably right. It's a very, very fragmented market because all schools can make their own decisions about what products they use. And so what that means is you can't grow really fast. The fastest growing companies in the UK in education are relatively slow growing companies. Yeah, right. Now in the US, it's slightly different because they have different business models. They give away a lot more for free and you have much bigger markets. They buy in districts, that type of thing for multiple schools. Whereas here, you're beginning to get some of that kind of element because you've got multi-academy trusts, which obviously means that schools can work together, maybe in 10 or up to sort of 50, 70 schools. And they might purchase particular solutions. But that's a relatively new thing in the last few years. And so that's kind of growing, but not really established as much as would be useful, I think. So let's talk about your company, Pobble. So do you want to start with the problem that it solves? Let's start there. Yeah. So I was working in the Middle East as an engineer. That's what I did before. I got a call from my brother, who was an English leader in a primary school um, and and a sort of passionate Mm. teacher and loves writing and things. And he basically said, look, I'm working on this thing with a friend of mine who's a deputy head teacher. And really what we're trying to do is get kids more excited to write, because what we find is that children, particularly as you get into kind of the high years of primary school, are really reluctant to write. And the challenge as a teacher is if they won't write, then it's very hard to teach them anything because they don't practice, et cetera. And they'd worked out, there were a couple of things that they were kind of playing with, these concepts that were making a big difference. One of which was, if you can show children real examples of other children's writing, handwritten work, this is really motivating for kids. They kind of see, oh, okay, if Billy, who's sort of a 10-year-old from over here, can write a subordinate clause, you know, maybe I can as well. And so what Henry, my brother, used to do was um, photocopy good examples of children's work, put them in a box so that when they repeated the sort of subject the following year, Mm. you know, say they're teaching about the Roman, pull out his Romans example from the box, put it on the visualizer and use that as his kind of model text. And previously, teachers would write their own model text. So they would write a subordinate clause and to show an example. So that was kind of one thing that he'd realized makes a big difference. The other thing that Simon, the deputy head teacher, had been doing a lot of work around was blogging. So blogging is really the idea of encouraging children to write things to be published online. The idea that if you give children purpose and audience for their work, mm. you know, they try that bit harder. They're quite excited by, you know, putting things live on the Internet, that sort of thing. But managing a blog is a lot of work as a classroom teacher. And so he was trying to think about, well, if you did this at scale for multiple classrooms, how could you make this whole process far more effective and easy for classroom teachers? And of course, if you've got a load of people that are publishing their writing online, those examples can then be used as a means 
for planning lessons so that you can show children what good writing looks like. Yeah. And that, that was really the first idea for Pobble. It was like, okay, how can we create an online repository for bits of writing? How can we categorize them by age, by genre, by topic? And then how do we make those available for teachers as a really useful teaching planning resource? And then, of course, once people have done their writing, they can publish to this website and that's going to give them that sort of purpose and audience. Yeah. Um, and so and of course, that builds the builds the number of pieces of work you have, making this sort of collection better. So that's an interesting origin story, because so you're in the Middle East, mm-hmm. your brother phones you and he's a teacher yeah. and you're an engineer. So were you a software engineer? Sounds like you were doing other engineering yeah, so there were a couple of elements. I mean, so one, I did a general engineering degree, yeah. so I knew how to do some basic kind of coding and things. But I'd been talking to Henry, my brother, for a while about how I was keen to get out of what I was doing. I was building mega projects in the Middle East, yeah, which was interesting in a way. Yeah, But it sort of didn't really align with kind of much purpose in my life. I was like, well, you know, why do we want to spend a lot of money made from oil on bigger airports and bigger ports for the Middle East? You know, what's the sort of goal in that? And so I'd been sort of looking for, well, I'd really wanted to do something entrepreneurial, always had that kind of drive. And and my brother knew that. Mm. And initially he just called me for some advice. And it was funny because at the time I kind of did what I know how to do best. I took all of the information that he gave me. I built a PowerPoint. I then had a call with him and Simon and said, you know what? These are the 10 things I'd be thinking about next if I was doing this. And on the back of that conversation, they were like, John, why don't you just help us? We're teachers. We don't know how to write business plans or market or anything else but what we do know is what works in the classroom so if we focus on that bit perhaps you could work out how we potentially build a business out of this or how we build the platform and there was a fourth founder tom who was it was again involved in one of the schools and he had been doing a lot of ict and things so between us all he basically bought a wordpress manual and that's how we coded the first version of the website we literally sat down and sort of collective effort worked out Mm. okay well we need to build this and use these sorts of templates etc and that's how it got built so it sounds like there wasn't a sort of one definite moment in time that was the light bulb moment it was like just slowly went from dim to brilliant light (laughs) over that period is that fair to say yeah i think so there was definitely though one moment when i sort of realized that this was what i wanted to kind of do yeah henry and simon came over to abu dhabi where i was living and partly so Henry could you know, visit, but uh, also partly to talk about Pobble in the sort of early stages. And I'd managed to arrange, I used to sing with, I did a lot of singing in the Middle East and um, shows and things. And I sung with a lot of teachers. Oh, wow. So of course I asked them, well, you know, what do you think? Would this be useful? And what was fascinating was it doesn't matter what culture you go to, whether China, Australia, the Middle East, everyone has the same struggle about engaging children in writing yeah and so they were like well if you've got something that might work like come into our school and so when henry and simon came over we ran writing workshops in lots of schools in abu dhabi wow and i think that for me like seeing first of all it was interesting seeing my brother henry you know i've never seen him teach before Mm. but standing at the back of the room and sort of henry walks in and he's like becomes this sort of children's tv presenter (laughs) (laughs) absolutely hilarious i had so much fun just watching but i remember distinctly the moment that he sort of said to the children like you know look on the board like what is this and they're like oh it's a world map and he's like great and what are all these dots do you think and they're like oh i don't know and they're like well these are people that have visited our website in the last month 
And did you know what? Today, your writing is going to be published on this website for the world to see. Mm. And it was like this huge collective gasp from the whole, every child in that room was like, okay, okay. And so anyway, and then they ran this workshop, they produced a piece of writing and all the children got published that day. And the teacher came to me afterwards and said, that was the most incredible lesson we've ever seen. You know, we've never seen our children as engaged as at this moment. Yeah. And I, for me, I remember that kind of day was the moment that I realized this was something I needed to pretty much give up my entire life for and move back to London, pack in my job and career and actually go back and yeah, yeah work on this full time and see if we could make it in, into something. So that flicked the switch. Yeah. And then I saw a video where you were talking about having famous authors mm. coming on the site and actually critiquing some of the children's writing and, you know, giving people praise for the work they've done and so on. So there's something really powerful and motivational about the idea of other people consuming your writing, consuming your work, rather than it just being something that you're doing as a, you know, almost as a kind of classroom exercise to get through to when the bell goes or whatever. So it just makes a huge difference. So do you think that's the energy that really sort of pobble and powers the work that you do? I think early days, that definitely had a huge impact. I mean, the fact that people like Michael Morpurgo would go on to Pobble and leave comments yeah. to children. I mean, that makes a school's year mm. when, you know, a famous author, you know, Joe Craig or Anthony Horowitz. It was funny. Anthony Horowitz was in Dubai and just happened to be there. And there was a school, I think the Ranches Primary School had published some writing based on one of his books okay. um, that morning on Pobble. And Anthony Horowitz saw it because, of course, they tweeted us. We tweeted Anthony Horowitz. And again, Twitter's wonderful because you can engage with people like that. Mm. And so Anthony Horowitz got in the car in Dubai, drove to that school and just showed up at the school and then went and spoke to those children. And, they, you know, they had a sort of wonderful afternoon. And again, it was just all it was, was being the ability to make that connection. Yeah. To kind of show him the writing that was being produced in the school. It's obviously about his books and his character. So he said to us, well, I love talking to children about what they would write about based on my characters, because that gives me lots of ideas for my writing and what things are going to be interesting for the children. So, you know, and there's countless examples of people that are authors that have engaged in Pobble and as a result the schools have sort of had just these wonderful experiences or children have gone from being really reluctant writers to being really sort of excited and engaged and now I think we've got a lot more of a kind of stable ecosystem so we don't rely on the authors you know still yeah. they jump in which is wonderful but now it's a lot more about that kind of peer-to-peer feedback yeah. so actually having a child in the UK write about elephants and then have a child in South Africa who's seen elephants be able to kind of comment and engage on each other's work of course in a safe moderated way that's part key element to bubble mm. yeah that's really quite unique there aren't if any platforms that are safe for children to do that from six years old and it, when you ask children what they get from Pobble, they all talk about well they love the fact that their writing is being read it's being sort of fed back on their parents can engage as well you know even something as simple as having their mum and dad you know comment on their their piece of writing that fills them with a lot of pride so yeah so that community piece is is really really important from yeah. authors right down to you know mums and dads and cousins and aunts and uncles i was thinking there when you talked about the writing about elephants and then someone who has elephants on their doorstep commenting on it so when we were at school that would have been pen pals right yes. and so this is like the tech equivalent of pen pals Absolutely. and so i suppose it leads me on to just the question about education and its ripeness for disruption and new technology so why do you think education hasn't been more disrupted or advanced by technology so far 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think prior to the pandemic, with everything being so fragmented, it was really hard to kind of get a sort of to basically make progress. You know, when, when we first started, schools would just had absolutely no experience of buying software. So in order to sell Pobble, what we would do is we would run writing workshops and we would sell those to schools. And then during the workshops, we would introduce Pobble as a concept. Okay. And then on the back of that, schools would sort of say, oh, this is quite interesting. Could we use it? And we're like, yes, you can. That's, you know. <laughs> That's and, kind um, of why we're here. Yeah. That was kind of our way in. And then over time, it's become a little bit easier. But you can imagine when we onboarded a school, we would visit every single school to go and train them. Yeah. And that is incredibly labor intensive. You know, you've got schools all over the world. I mean, it did mean some of our team members got to go, you know, we've flown to the Seychelles, to Hong Kong, to China. We've had some pretty incredible trips as a result, but, you know, it's not very scalable. But your ability to scale is exactly just obviously massively hampered by that. Yeah. And without the ability to scale, you can't get funding. Mm. You know, we have a lot of fantastic angels that support Bobble and a couple of school groups that have put money behind Bobble. But I've spoken to lots of VCs and in the end, it always comes down to the fact that it's really hard to see how this can scale fast enough to make it worthwhile yeah. as an investment for a VC. Yeah. And then what happened with the pandemic, which was just kind of staggering, was suddenly every single school in the country and potentially worldwide had to figure out how they could deliver lessons online or you know remotely, let's say. And of course, online's the way to do that. And so they say that they had sort of five years worth of disruption in about two weeks. Right. And I think that's probably about right. If I reflect on the last week, we had 20, 25 schools, new schools come on board with Pobble. And of course, we didn't visit any one of them. In fact, we ran webinars and we have well over 100 teachers on a single webinar being trained. And we run three or four webinars a day now. Wow. So it's so much more scalable, so much more effective. And so I think you've just gone from a situation where tech was, just so far from being, you know, the sort of present thing in schools. You know, there, obviously there were some schools that were quite tech savvy, but now every school is trying to kind of make that transformation of being a little bit more tech enabled. And I think that's obviously really positive for the industry because now companies like Pobble are able to move forward much quicker and achieve a lot more. Yeah. Therefore, we can get more funding so we can build a better product. So kind of everything is a sort of has a knock on positive effect. Have there been pains within that growth? So just suddenly being thrown a thousand opportunities in your face in a day. I mean, that that there's a downside to that too, presumably. Yeah, it's been a really tough year. I mean, that sounds really bad because, of course, it's mm -hmm. great to have lots of demand. But it has been really, really challenging to work out exactly who needs what. So Pobble was set up for being used in schools. And, you know, February last year, we had to very quickly make a switch to work out, well, how could we make lessons available online so that parents could access or schools could share links to lessons very easily? Yeah. Um, and so there's been a huge amount of product development that's gone on behind the scenes just to enable people to use Pobble in the sort of new situation. But to give you an idea, we had a surge of something like seven times the number of users in the first week of lockdown than we did two weeks before. Wow. So you can imagine like that's a huge increase. You know, normally you might grow your users 50% a year or something. Yeah. You know, we're talking like seven times. And so, you know, we luckily had last September just launched a kind of new version of Pobble built on sort of the latest infrastructure, very scalable, all cloud-based servers. And so actually we were in a really good position to kind of grow that quickly. But actually that element of it went very smoothly. 
But of course, then you have lots more questions, lots more, you know, you have to be able to onboard people basically fully online. So we had to develop a lot of kind of training webinars and videos. We had to work on our user experience to make sure that any teacher anywhere in the world could sign up and be using Pobble within a few minutes. And so, yeah, the, a lot of operational challenges as well that went along with that too. Yeah. Um, were there times where it felt like you were just too far behind the curve of where you needed to be? Like, were there times this year where it just felt like, please let this just stop for a while? <laughs> I think most days is probably the, uh, <laughs> right. the accurate answer to Yeah. I mean, to give you an idea now, we have, we have about 300 new teachers signing up and activating free trials every single day. Wow. So, I mean, that's fantastic. But that means it's just relentless yeah. and it, it doesn't end. You know, even over the summer, we had a lot of people concerned about their children's progress over the last term. You know, lots of schools were looking at, lots of schools knew that writing was going to be particularly hard hit by home learning. Right. Okay. Um, partly because, you know, reading, you can read books with your children. So, as parents, that's an easy one. Maths, there's lots of apps out there to help, but also you can do basic arithmetic with your children. But writing is a much harder thing to really teach at home. Mm. You know, you can encourage your children to write, but parents are not just naturally kind of able to pick up the teaching of writing. So we found that schools were really looking specifically for writing solutions to help in their sort of catch up attempts. So, yeah, so it's been really, really busy for the last eight months and it's <laughs> been pretty much without let up. So we're uh, yeah, yeah. in a good way, but it's definitely tiring. Yeah. So obviously this podcast is called Beyond Busy Yeah. and you've been in the middle of busy for that period. What's been your kind of busyness survival tactics? What are the things that have helped to keep you sane? Well, I think we were in a very fortunate position coming into the pandemic because we were already a fully remote team. So I was the last person to leave the office when we moved from London to Cornwall 18 months ago. Yeah. And that meant that in terms of actually running the business, and we have 14 people in the business, that was straightforward. We knew how to communicate online well. We had all our processes set up well. So that was a great sort of starting point. And then I think in terms of, you know, sort of personally, I mean, living down in Cornwall is wonderful from the perspective that this last Sunday, it was a beautiful day. So we literally took the kids and we spent the whole day at the beach, at Gwydion Beach. We ate mm. at Gwydion Beach Cafe. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a wonderful, totally switched off day from work where all we did was focus on the family, on the important things, watching the sea. Yeah. And I think for me, that balance of being able to switch off, you know, we bought a paddleboard this year. I've loved paddleboarding. It's just, you know, paddleboarding up the creeks when the tide's kind of just coming in or, or, you know, just changing. So really still, really calming. It's finding those moments where you're able to kind of switch off from the busyness of work. And so I think, yes, it has been busy, but we've coped with it well because we had a lot of things in place already that we'd sort of worked on. And we've been trying to design the organization and our lifestyle in order to make it possible to cope with very challenging circumstances like this year has been. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the idea of being a fully remote team there mm. and, um, Think Productive, my business is kind of similar, you know, so we mm. we gave up our office, actually similar to you guys, just before the pandemic, we gave up our final piece of office space and went fully remote. I'd love to know more about what those processes are, some of the geeky conversations about the technology that you're using, like what's the glue that holds it together for you guys as a remote team? 
Well, it's funny actually reading yesterday that Slack has just been um, acquired by Salesforce for something like $37 billion. But right. Yeah. I was describing to my wife because she asked me, oh, what's Slack? Because she's, you know, not, we're not working <laughs> yeah. on a remote team. And I'm like, Slack? Slack is like everything. You know, it's it's like far better than email. And, it, you know, but but yeah, Slack has been absolutely key. I think Slack and Google Hangouts or Google Meet, yeah. they have been central to Pobble for the last two years. Mm. You know, we do all of our communication through Slack. We very rarely email one another. And there are various rules. So I remember when my CTO, Matt, first pitched to me that we should become a fully remote team or at least a partially remote team. And there were lots of potential benefits. We were saying it'd be much easier to recruit and to retain people. This is the way that it's going anyway, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, at the time, I was incredibly skeptical. I was like, I'm sure this won't work. You know, you need to be together for that kind of creativity. But I, I have to say, I've been proven completely wrong. I think it's a, for us, it's become a far more productive way to work. Yeah. And there was a book called Remote. I don't even know who it's by, but it's just called Remote. And it is, in a way, our Bible for how we tackle remote working. And I always, whenever anyone asks about, should we be switching to a remote scenario or how do I personally manage working remotely? I always recommend this book because it's a brilliant guide for what to do. We'll put that in the show notes, by the way, so that people can reference that one. Yeah, it's definitely good. Yeah. And I know that when we first moved to Cornwall and I first started working remotely, I found it really hard. It was a really hard adjustment to make. Mm. But simple things, simple things that are laid out in the book, like getting dressed properly each day and actually treating it like going to the office. Yeah. You know, having your room that is the office and that being separate to the rest of the house and out of bounds for kids. There are various things like that that have sort of made it much easier to kind of manage, I would say. So the thing about space there, thing about getting dressed and having the rituals to transition from home mindset into work mode and work mindset. Yeah, and things that actually I learned from you, inbox zero, those sorts of things. Yeah. Absolutely critical. I don't even know how I would manage without basically just finishing everything. So getting to the end of the day, yeah. whatever that time is, I tend to work in the evenings as well. Sometimes I adopt quite a flexible approach because I'm quite productive in the evenings. But getting to the end of the day and making sure you have your to-do list clear you know, yeah. Obviously, I've got a board behind me with all the kind of ideas and workings on. I love whiteboarding and kind of getting stuff out there. Mm. And then we found our team meetups to be really important. So what you end up doing is you work on a lot of the kind of delivery of the projects while you're remote. And then you come together normally without a pandemic once every sort of six weeks, two months. And that's where you have two or three intense days of really creative work, sketching things out, making the next set of sprints clear. And we found out to be, we got into a really good kind of method of and sort of routine of doing that. Mm. And it's nice because you can select new places to visit. You know, we've got people in Belgium, Slovakia, Ukraine. And so, you know, our next meetup, we're going to go to Portugal and get an Airbnb on the coast in Portugal. Wow. Okay. Because, you know, why not? That's a perfectly reasonable place to go and meet up. Yeah. And, and that's what you can do, I think, if you start to get a bit more creative about those sorts of things and make those a bit more special. So everyone goes to Portugal or goes to London or wherever it's going to be. And then three days. So presumably day one is kind of check in and review progress and that kind of stuff. And then you spend a couple of days really just looking at what you want to do next. That's right. With the product. Yeah. Is that, is yeah, that pretty, pretty much, much it? it? And a lot of it yeah. is about just kind of reconnecting and re just establishing all those sort of things that sort of make the Pobble team, you know, the Pobble team. Yeah. I think it's hard if, in a way, our mission, you know, Pobble's mission is an easy one to get behind. You know, it's all about inspiring children, you know, the future and yeah. trying to help people express themselves and be creative. And a lot of us are parents. So there's a real sense of kind of camaraderie within the team. 
And all of most of the team used to work in an office together. You know, one of the devs who's now in Belgium and Ass and, and the two in Slovakia, you know, they were in London. They just moved back there. Right. So again, that's really helped because we all have kind of established relationships. But we have brought on a couple of new people recently. And again, they've been able to settle in really nicely. But it's in those team events where you really get to know one another. You might go to the pub, mm. you know, in the sort of evening and socialize a lot more that way. And so I think you really build a very family type kind of attitude to the way that work is. Uh, yeah, that's at least what we've sort of managed to do. And it seems to work. That feels to me like the future of work. But you're talking about it in a more exaggerated form, right? So being away from each other for a set few weeks and then you come together every six weeks or so. Mm. I guess for most people listening to this, they may be in that place of being back in an office, but a couple of days a week and then maybe from home three days a week. But that's sort of like the interplay, isn't it? It's like when you're in the office together, it's about that kind of social communication and understanding mm. and creativity. And then when you're back on your own at home and working remotely, it's much more about heads down, focus, deliver and execute on the things that you've been setting out. Yeah. And we talk a lot. We always have like at the beginning of the week, our kind of stand up and on the Monday morning, our huddle. And that's everybody in the team. And we talk about how last week, how are people feeling? What's the plan for this week? Yeah. And then I was actually thinking the other day about kind of one-to-ones. I almost have one-to-ones in my team pretty much every day. You know, <laughs> I'm pretty much yeah. with someone collaborating on something. Yeah. So we are very, very fluid in the amount of time we spend talking to each other or sharing a doc to kind of work out something. And then at the end of the week, we have our show and tell. And that's a lovely way where everyone gets a kind of minute or a couple of minutes each. And they get to share, you know, a little video or a slide of something that they've been working on that week that they want to share with the team. So I think getting into good routines about how you're going to collaborate and share and communicate, not just the sort of operational stuff you need to do, but also the stuff you're proud of. You know, people show and tell that they've built a new set of steps for their house or something, you know, right. can be anything, but it's nice because you get that real sort of sense of what's important to people and what people like to share. So I think, yeah, communication is obviously really, really important in the success of a remote situation. Yeah. One thing I wanted to just come back on was Slack. Mm. So you mentioned Inbox Zero there. Yeah. How does that apply to Slack in terms of sort of Slack Channel Zero <laughs> and just managing Slack in terms of sometimes it can be a really noisy place? Actually, that's right. Slack's not as ideal for Inbox Zero as email. We just have one <laughs> yeah. inbox. Yeah, for sure. So do you have rules about how you use Slack? I'd love to just know more about like how you've made it work. So actually, no, we don't have specific rules about it. I find quite a lot that I'll, because I have Slack on my phone, I'll be having lunch and I'll kind of still be in the conversation and I might see things. What I normally do, at least at the end of the day, is just go through all of the channels and just make sure there's no kind of actions that I missed. Yeah. So I think it's about, again, having some kind of process where you can make sure that you're kind of gleaning off what's important that you need to actually do. But I agree, actually, Slack, that's one area you could possibly work on. Yeah. It's like, how do you create that kind of inbox zero type approach and methodology? in Slack because it is a lot harder to miss things. Yeah, and just you just find something that's just been buried in yeah. 15 other channels and you don't see it. I've been trying to do it on my weekly review with WhatsApp as well. Yeah. So I've just really noticed that WhatsApp and 
chats on WhatsApp is so prevalent now yeah. for me that like one of my new things on my weekly review is just to trawl through WhatsApp at least a week behind and just make sure that there's nothing lurking in there from four days ago. And there usually is, right? Yeah. Like usually there's a, Graham, can you do this? Or can you email me that? Or there's this thing. And it was four days ago and I've just forgotten. So just having that safety net in the weekly review for me is the sort of, I guess, the key thing. But yeah, doing that every day as a close down the phone, close down the laptop kind of ritual at the end of the day is probably a good approach, I think. Yeah. And I think actually we moved from WhatsApp to Slack and that was instrumental because we used to have what we called the staff room. And it was just one WhatsApp channel for everyone in the business. Right, yeah. And it was just carnage. You could wake up and have 100 messages yeah. about something and you just have no chance of kind of following. So obviously with Slack, you can kind of divide out channels and conversations. And so it makes it much better. for, And you can search and all those sorts of things and attach files in a bit more structured way. So we definitely find that works a lot better for us than what we were doing before on WhatsApp. Yeah, mm. interesting. We've got a few more minutes left. And one of the topics that I like to talk about on this podcast is just how people define happiness and success in their work. Mm. I mean, it just strikes me talking to you, there's a real sense of purpose in the business that you're engaged in. Like you say, it's very difficult, be pretty difficult not to feel engaged in the work that you're doing. So I'm just wondering, do you have a kind of plan or what an end game of success looks like for you within the business? Or is it just a case of just enjoying the process of building it and the day to day? Yeah, I very much try to enjoy the journey and try to think, look, because there's so many ups and downs in entrepreneurship, as I'm sure you know, it's, you know, it's crazy sometimes the, yeah. the sort of highs and lows. But I think if you can try to enjoy the journey and each step you're taking, that's a really good start. I do know for me, one thing I really find hard is feeling of not having control. Mm. And it was a good example of this with the, when the pandemic hit, there was some, particularly some investors and some people that sort of said, look, guys, you should be doing something around parents. This is where the opportunity is. Yeah. How could you package Pobble up to work for parents? And so we gave it a try. Like, you know, we took the ideas. It seemed like a sensible thing. We created a landing page. And we got thousands of parent signups in a couple of weeks. It was pretty staggering. And, you know, even we were like, well, okay. Mm. And we surveyed them as well. And something like a third of these parents said they would pay for something that would help their children to write. And so what we did, we tried to kind of package up the product in a slightly different way. And in the end, it basically didn't work because Hobble was built for teachers. It's not a parent product. Yeah. And if you were going to build something for parents to help support the teaching of writing at home, you would build something different. You know, it would be an independent app or a set of games or something that children could work with independently. And that's not how Hobble is built. And it really like that really annoyed me, you know, making that mistake because it reminded me that actually when you're living and breathing this business day in, day out, you know, you really know what you need to do. And I kind of fundamentally knew that it was the wrong thing to try to kind of play around with this sort of parent proposition. Mm. And I should have kind of trusted my instinct. But when you have investors on board, you know, no disrespect to them, of course, they're trying to make Pobble as successful as possible, but you lose an element of control. You start having to consider their views. Yeah. And some of them you know, may not really know anything about the business you're in. And so for me, happiness, I will feel you know, happy, I think, when I have sort of complete control of my destiny, essentially. Mm. Simon and I are the two kind of main directors of Pobble. Simon's the deputy head who co-founded it. And I feel like the sort of success for us would be to run Pobble for a long time. We absolutely love what we do. We love the impact that we have. And we're super excited by the potential growth all over the world for working with children and creating impact. But what I really want to do is do that 
on our terms and not have to answer to, you know, I've spoken to lots of VCs who've offered us terms before where essentially you give over complete control of your business to somebody else. Yeah. So the point that they could fire you as CEO if they wanted to. And clearly, if I'm not doing a good job, that you know that's fine. But the point is here that I think for me, having real control over what we do and the choices that we make, even if that means that we have to be a little less ambitious as to how quickly we grow or how fast the team. We don't need a huge team. I see these couple of education companies right now who've raised money in their hiring sort of you know 50 positions, and I'm like, I can't think of anything worse. Hiring people is really hard. Like <laughs> anyone who's ever hired anyone and failed at that, which yeah. I'm sure a lot most people have will realize that's really tricky and very stressful and very much out of your control. And so I really like situations where I can kind of be in control and go at my pace. And that's what makes me feel happy and sort of calm and comfortable in what we're doing. And so I think for that reason, the pandemic, although it feels like that's a really good thing for online education, it's actually been hard because suddenly you're subject to a lot of external forces that you can't control. And I have to consciously calm myself and say, look, you can't do anything about that. All we can do is focus on our game and do what we do well. Yeah. And if we do that, that's what makes me feel calm and happy and kind of grounded, I think. Yeah. And I guess it's like you can't stop the bus, right? Yeah. You've got investors saying, do this or try that. And there's such momentum behind it because of the pandemic and everything else that's happening. Yeah. Then just naturally, you're just less in control. Yeah, absolutely. And you feel a sort of obligation. You know, they've given us their money for us to try to grow that money. So you definitely and rightly feel an obligation to try to support their views and ideas. But I do know when we've been most successful, when we've focused really internally and tried basically just try to work out what the customer needs. I mean, that's pretty much what any startup boils down to. Can you figure out a need that is big enough, felt by enough people, that people are then going to adopt or buy your solution? If you keep things really simple, that's where I'm kind of at my sort of happiest is thinking about those things, Um, not trying to kind of force something on that may or may not be quite aligned with what we're trying to do. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I went through a process of writing down my core values, which mm. is a really useful exercise. And one of them was freedom and autonomy, yes. which I think really talks to what you're describing there. Absolutely. And I think on reflection, because that's such a sort of core value for me, that's probably one of the reasons that I've always resisted the idea of setting up a board for my company. Mm. And I've always resisted the idea of even looking for investment and sort of, you know, turning that down if people have approached me as well. Do you have any advice for me? It sounds like you have a similar core value there. Mm -hmm. Any advice for me on how to make that work and how to maintain either actual control or at least the feeling of control (laughs) when it's, you know, everybody else has their own sort of sense of ownership, presumably over Pobble and wants to sort of take it in perhaps different directions to you? Yeah. So we don't have a board. Interestingly, we have an advisory board, some really, really good advisors that help. But I like to take advice from lots of different people. I just feel that the executive team probably know what's best to do. Mm. We haven't really had any situation that's been so complicated that we've been unable to have a pretty good idea about how to proceed with it. Yeah, maybe as you start to get into real scale-up situations where you're like picking between, okay, do we go for the Middle East or Southeast Asia? Okay, there are lots of factors and having people with experience can definitely help. But I've found just random coffee chats with people. If I want to move into, let's take that example, say we want to do more in the Middle East. If we can find someone who has some experience in the Middle Eastern market that we can have a quick sit down with. I found everyone's so happy to have conversations pretty much you can reach out to anyone now on LinkedIn and pretty much you can get a conversation with them, particularly if you're not asking for money. I found that a lot harder when we were fundraising because you'd always have this agenda of like, hey, can you offer me some advice? And you know, at some point I'm going to ask you for some money. You know, that's a very different thing to look, hey, 
you've got this great experience. Yeah. We really could do a half hour chat about this. You know, could we have a quick call? And, and that's even easier now it's remote, I think. Mm. You know, you don't even have to meet for coffee. You can literally just have a Zoom chat. And so I think, yeah, it doesn't really answer your question really. But I think the biggest challenge for us is that we need to be basically at cash break even. If we're at cash break even, we are in control of our destiny because we don't need to go and raise more money. Right. Yeah. So that's where I would focus. If I was rebuilding this startup from scratch or doing a second one, there would be no other like thing more important than product market fit. That's obviously one. But the second thing then is getting to cash flow break even. So you don't need to rely on having to raise more money because that's when you give away control, when you're desperate and you have to raise more money. We're lucky that we've managed to secure ways forward. We've got some great grants this year that mean we're well sustained. But I just know from being close to situations where we've run out of money, that that is where you basically make compromises on things like control, which I think then in the long term, create difficulties in the business yeah for sure so if you can kind of avoid those pinch points if you have to make redundancies at any point or reduce cost base like do that early you know give yourself enough room so that you can stay afloat and stay sustainable and then you'll always have the freedom of choice because you kind of choose what you want to do and you're not really answerable to other people yeah and there's almost like a systematic relationship between bootstrapping or just controlling cost and having control right like mm. the more you need to spend the more you need to look for people to give you that money to spend and therefore sort of take on the investment and like the more as you go through a process you can just bootstrap and be at break even or a little bit more just the more control you have right yeah and it's amazing how much you can do about four years ago we thought we needed to ramp up sales and so we hired some salespeople, very experienced in the education sector yeah and it was the worst thing we did we unfortunately had to make all three of them redundant three months later four months later wow. And because they weren't able to sell what we were doing as well as the founders. Mm. And so in a way, it just didn't really work out. And what was interesting was at that point, in order to kind of justify the decision that I pretty much made unilaterally the team, there was quite a lot of uncertainty as to whether it was the right call. But I was I was really sure that this was the right thing to do. So what I did then is I stepped into the head of sales role. And I've never really done sales in my life before. <laughs> and it was brutal. Like the first six months was so hard, like no one taking calls, no one in interested. But then over time, you started to work out, okay, well, this is how you get past gatekeeper number one. And this is how you start to qualify whether a school might even be interested in buying your product. Mm. This is then how you start to sell to those people. And over the course of 18 months, I went from you know selling absolutely nothing to we had a kind of record year driven by the founders selling. And, and I was kind of leading on that because I'd sort of chosen to. And what that meant is that I realized we don't need sales people. We can do this online. There's actually ways to automate this. And, and so by learning how to do it myself, I was then able to kind of identify what is the most scalable, you know, cost-effective way to drive this process forward rather than hiring an expensive other person to design a process that may not even work anyway. Yeah. And so we always now have this philosophy where essentially if we haven't done this thing ourselves as founders, we don't hire someone else to do it. Like no consultant, no anything. Like we have to have done it ourselves in order to understand how to get the help we need in order to do that. And in most cases, you end up not hiring anyone anyway, because you figure out how to do it in a very effective way. And then you can build a sort of scalable piece into your business. Yeah. So that's another thing, Like particularly after we raise money the first time, we're like, great, let's hire some people who know what they're doing. And it just doesn't work like that. No one comes into a business and can immediately deliver things. And so pretty much that's your job as a founder, I think, is to work out all those things. 
And I think that's the thing is mapping those processes mm-hmm. and really just getting under the skin of how something works. I've done it so many times myself where the easiest reaction when you're drowning in so many different projects is let's find a capable person <laughs> that I can at least just hand some of those projects to. But often the real benefit of the work of a founder is to do that mapping, work it all out. Yeah. And then it becomes clearer who you need and what you need yeah. to take other things on if you need to hire at all. Yeah, absolutely right that's definitely what we found yeah so just before we finish i guess i have one final question is you have over the last year been dealing with the education sector and that going through just such a rapid series of changes through the year so i'd love to just know how you think the education sector is coming out of the pandemic and what do you think is going to be the lasting impact in 20 years time when we look back and say this is the thing that really changed in education as a result well i think there are a few themes i think unfortunately you're going to have a sort of generation of children who lost a lot of education and in those children you're going to have the ones that were able to be kind of educated at home and had very engaged parents or parents that even had the you know the time and the ability to help do homeschooling, their sort of loss will be a lot less. Unfortunately, you'll have people that had less books or less things at home to help to educate or less space or less devices or whatever it was. They unfortunately are going to be much, much further behind. And the research coming out at the moment is pretty staggering, you know, saying that people have lost years worth of education, you know, Mm. in terms of just that relatively small period of time. Sweetie, I'm just uh, on a conversation at the moment. Can, can we do it in five minutes time is that okay um you can do it in five minutes sorry about that <laughs> is this your daughter has a better answer than you john that's this awesome. is my daughter alexia and yeah she probably knows a lot more Hi, about it I'm, <laughs> I'm in my school uniform you right are, now you are in your school i can see it's it's very smart Alexia, how have you found the year of school where you've been in lockdown and COVID-19 and everything? What's changed for you? Um, well, tomorrow we're allowed to bring in our Christmas jumpers. Okay. But wear our school uniforms underneath, obviously. Ah, <laughs> and yeah, also, um, next week on the following Friday, we are going to make, we've been asked to bring in a big orange um, and also we're going to like put a candle in the middle of the orange ah. and also then put three sticks and put maybe sweeties on the sticks and also then we're going to put a red ribbon around the middle. I think I remember doing that myself. Mm. The red ribbon is I think to say that God sadly died and also um, the candle is... um. God's love never ends, and also the um, sticks are the four seasons, and also the orange is the earth. Well, there we go. Ah, there you go. So we've learned a lot, John, and, and <laughs> Alexia as well. And I think that that nicely explains why school is so important for, you know, Alexia's six. Mm. And she loved it when she was able to go back to school because teachers and schools know how to put together activities and interesting things that get children excited and engaged like this. And yeah. I and- love school. And also, we're already in year one. That's right. And you found home learning quite tricky, didn't you? You didn't like doing learning at home. I didn't like it as much. No. So I think having children in school is an important. Yeah. Unless you're, yeah, there are obviously lots of homeschoolers that, you know, 
do a great job and everything else but they're planning for that you know they're they're set up to do that but if you're not i think that's a really really tricky thing for any parent to figure out so for sure we're just going to say goodbye now do you <laughs> mind do you want to say goodbye uh, to graham and then i'll come through in five minutes okay? i also love school <laughs> it was lovely to meet you i don't know whether you know but you've just been on my podcast <laughs> there you go that's exciting, isn't it? Early times, yeah. <laughs> so look, you just go through that and I'll be in in five minutes. Okay. See you later. <laughs> oh, there you go. So we are a podcast all about work-life balance <laughs> yeah. as well as productivity. So I think that's a lovely note to bring it to a close. So John, do you want to, if people want to find out more about Pobble and connect with you, how do they find out more? Yeah, absolutely. So you can just go to the Pobble website. You can sign up if you want. If you're a teacher or a homeschooler or a tutor or anything like that, you can sign up for a free trial and have a look around Pobble and the tools and the content that we kind of provide yeah. um, you can always reach out to me i'm just john j-o-n at pobble.com yeah and we're always always excited to hear from people and a lot of the current scenario around the pandemic means that we're always encouraging conversations with anyone in any kind of situation that they're really looking to improve writing with their children whether that's parents or teachers or anything else so yeah feel free to reach out we'd love to talk with you Great stuff. Well, thanks for being on Beyond Busy, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. And uh, we'll put a link to all of that in the show notes as well. Um, so, yeah, if you want to connect with John, um, you can do that at getbeyondbusy.com. So, yeah, cool. thanks again. And, um, yeah, lovely to talk to you today. Thanks, Graham. Really good to talk. So there you go, John Smith, and a shout out and thanks to my business partner, Elena Kerrigan, Managing Director of Think Productive, for putting us in touch and helping to set that one up. We are also the sponsors of this podcast at Think Productive. So if you're interested in productivity, if you want to help your people to do their best work, then head to thinkproductive.com. And from that page, you'll find all the different countries that we're in and you can find your local Think Productive office. It's just thinkproductive.co.uk if you're listening to this in the UK. And as well as our standard stuff around how to be a productivity ninja, getting your inbox to zero and all that, we've got a whole bunch of other stuff that we do now. So helping with stuff like project management, helping with diversity and inclusion, a whole range of other stuff. So head to thinkproductive.com and find your country and get in touch. Thanks also to Emily, who is my assistant and has just been incredible over the last few weeks. We've been going through a bit of a transition in terms of the producers of this podcast. So just want to say a massive thanks to Emily for just taking on the burden of all of that and recruiting a new producer, doing a lot of the social media stuff for us in the interim as well. So it's just given me the confidence to just get my head down and do what I need to be doing, which is writing this new book on kindness and leadership. And I just couldn't have done that without you, Emily. So I just want to say a massive thank you and just place that on the record. And yeah, I hope everyone is well. I hope you're doing okay. Um, I had some really lovely feedback already on my new book, How to Fix Meetings, which has just come out. If you haven't got a copy of that, then we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. If you're a regular listener to Beyond Busy, you'll probably already know this because we've just had Hayley Watts and the legend Jackie Weaver on previous episodes talking about meetings. So by now you should be aware that I've got this book out, How to Fix Meetings. But I'd love you to go and buy a copy. It really matters that people buy books in the first month or so that they come out. Because that is the time where Amazon really starts to get its head around, get its algorithm around, like how big is this book going to be? So if you get it off to a good start, then the chances are you end up standing in good stead. So please don't delay. Please go and buy a copy of How to Fix Meetings. And that would make me very happy. 
and feel free to share it on social media. So tag me in just at Graham Alcott on Instagram, tag me in on LinkedIn if you want. And you can also tag us in on Twitter too. So yeah, love you to just go and buy a copy of How to Fix Meetings. Um, as I've said before, generally, I don't like putting sponsorship on the podcast. So we keep the sponsorship very much in house and very low key. I don't like having advertising and you know, all that like buy Squarespace and buy mattresses and stuff. But what that means is we put a lot of our own money into this podcast. And when it comes to putting a new book out there, you buying a copy of the book for a tenner is just a nice way to support what we're doing here at Beyond Busy. So if you get value from these episodes, please go and buy a copy of How to Fix Meetings, even if you never read it. Just think of it as a little token of appreciation. So go and buy a copy of How to Fix Meetings. That is all for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, We've got some really good ones booked in over the next few weeks and really excited to be sharing these. We're going to take a break over the summer holidays and we'll be going right up until July until then. So until then, enjoy the sunshine. Take care. Bye for now.